please, to Acts chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And let me read our four verses to you this morning from the New American Standard Bible, starting in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. We're in the middle of the second missionary journey. We'll put this in context in a minute. So putting out to sea from Troas, we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, ran a straight course to Samothrace, which is an island there in the Aegean, and on the day following to Neapolis, which is a, a port, still is a port. They've changed the name today. And from there, the port city to Philippi, about 10 miles away, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, Saturday, we went outside the gate of the city to the riverside where we were supposing there'd be a Jewish place of prayer. No synagogue. The few people that were Jewish would go to Riverside and pray and read scripture. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Very countercultural, very grace-oriented. We realize today that women and men are ontologically equal. The scripture teaches it anyway, but the culture that day would have said, there's only women here, let's not even have a service the Christian message goes to everybody, man, woman, rich, poor, black, white, Iraqi, and American. So we sat down and began speaking to the women who were there, and a particular woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was listening to us as we spoke, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The uh, U.S. space program under the direction of NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, in the 1960s, 1970s, launched six different manned missions to the moon in which people actually walked on the moon. Now, nowadays, as we look back on it, we focus pretty much just on the astronauts themselves who actually walked on the moon. And, of course, the most famous mission was the first one, Apollo 11. Uh, there were three astronauts involved, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. And the two guys on the sides there were the guys who actually walked on the moon. As you know, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon first, and then Buzz Armstrong. Uh, Neil said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. I thought he showed amazing restraint there, because when you're going to be the first guy on the moon, he could have arranged beforehand to say something like, drink Coca-Cola or something like that. And they would have paid him like millions of dollars. But he didn't do that. But here's the thing. As we think back about those six missions in which 12 different people walked on the moon, we, we focus on the astronauts. We focus on what they did. And what they did was amazing at many different levels. Right, Russell? But... What they did was just a small part of the overall mission. What was happening at Mission Control and other places all over the world was mind-boggling so they could walk on the moon. Now, in a similar way, God's program to redeem human beings like me 
from the penalty of our sin and to ultimately transport us and our souls from earth beyond the moon to heaven does involve individuals like the astronauts walking on the moon, does involve David Demerson or Linda Kinney or Brad McCoy hearing the gospel and believing it. But you know what? There's a whole lot more going on in God's mission control to make that all happen, to make it even possible. So this morning, in our four little verses here in this travel log portion, you don't think anything all that's important happening. Our verses today will allow us to get a glimpse of just how God works to make the eternal salvation of souls possible. And we're going to discover that knowing how God works can work wonders in the way we appreciate what we as believers have in Jesus Christ and make us understand better what's going on when we live and share the gospel in our lives today. So before we dive into all of that, in a minute I'm going to ask David Stribling to lead us in prayer for our teachability to God's word. And also let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And so, David, if you'd lead us in that direction. Thank you, David. It's nice to have Mr. and Mrs. Knuckles here with us today. They, if they have the newlywed glow, that's because you survived the first week. How's it going? Oh, okay. Well, when I tie that knot. Uh, yeah, so it's Phyllis's fault? Okay, that's good. It wasn't the preacher's fault, right? Okay, he did okay. I tell you what, uh, I couldn't have been more excited to see the bell choir come up there because I, I love little kids and were well, those beautiful kids and Ben. Was that little gal there in the front row? Beautiful. Man, that was one amazing musician. You know, her, her grandfather was a great drummer, but I think she's got a, I think she's got a future on the bells. But, uh, if you weren't here last week, it was the day after Halloween, so I took advantage of that, and I showed you some of my favorite little kids. And, uh, yeah, this was a NICU reunion about a week ago, because these little guys were born like at 311 and 411, and these two, uh, I'll try to get the names right this week. Uh, that's Lincoln and Vivian, he's an astronaut, she's a ballerina, and then in April, Jonathan and Candace had received another set of twins, and that is Eloise, and that's Violet. And so uh, I use every opportunity to show those to you. And then, uh, equal time for my older son, I'm going to try to get these names right for sure this time, that's Cooper, and that is Peter, right? So I got all that right this time. So I got the names wrong last week. But I tell you what, last, you might notice in the bulletin, anybody got a, a bulletin? We got a, we got a plethora of heroes of the week here, just too many to list here. Shelby for organizing our children's uh, wholesome Halloween alternative festival a week ago Saturday. David and Julie for organizing and hosting our farewell farewell fish fry for the Schonemeyers last Sunday night, and then David Yeager for reasons that he understands. Uh, when the pastor almost had a meltdown before services a week ago, but he fixed it for me. So anyway, uh, if you go back last Sunday night to just. Uh, I, I knew that the Demersons could do a lot of things, but how did you organize that weather? I mean, that was awesome the way you did that. Uh, I know they were praying about the weather. It was perfect. But, uh, you know, I enjoy those situations very much, especially when I don't have to set up or clean up. That makes it so much better. And uh, 
Yeah, I was overhearing a lot of interesting things, but I'm not going to waste your time with all the interesting things I heard. I'm going to share with you real quick, uh, just to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, which you're going to need if you're going to understand efficacious grace. Uh, top five things overheard at last Sunday's farewell fish fry for Rick and Donetta at the Demersons. Number five, I don't like to judge, but technically, isn't it a sin for Ron Miller to have three plates of fish at one time? That's actually something I thought. That's not, I didn't overhear that. I wondered about that. Number four, this odd-smelling casserole tastes kind of like an old Tanglewood Tiger softball jersey. Seriously, can it really be God's will for our pastor to have such a lousy toupee? Thank you. Do I actually have to show agape love to the little old lady who just took the last piece of pie? And the number one thing overheard at last uh, Sunday night's farewell fish fry was, let's make every Sunday Pastor Appreciation Day, but only after we get a new pastor. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Our passage this morning is one you might skip over to get to the next big miracle or the next big event, but very important in the program of God to see how this works. And uh, moving from Troas in the continent of Asia to Philippi on the continent of Europe, the missionary team of Paul, Silas, uh, Timothy, and now Luke sees this lady, Lydia, come to faith in Christ. And her conversion teaches us key truth about how God works in salvation. Uh, let's read... Uh, Verses 11 and 12. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and then on the following day to Neapolis, or Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was, in, was is a le- leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we're staying in that city for some days. Now, let's put all this in big context. We're describing the second missionary journey of Paul. He has three that are in the book of Acts. All those journeys start in Antioch of Syria. And after Paul had revisited the churches, he started on the first missionary journey. Remember last week, he wanted to go to Roman Asia. Now, we call the whole continent of Asia, Asia today. But the Romans only called the little tip here of Turkey, Asia. It was a Roman province called Asia. And his first plan, Paul's first plan, was to take the gospel to Asia, probably to Ephesus, the third largest city in the ancient world. And when he got a no answer from God on that, he said, well, let's go to Bithynia up here, because nobody's been there before with the gospel. But he was told no. So they went to Troas and waited, and he receives the famous Macedonian village. So we're being told in our passage today, we sailed across the Aegean, stopped at an island on one day, went to Neapolis, and then to Philippi, which was a huge city, very important city. Now, if we could kind of blow that up make it a little bit bigger. So we're sailing. That little strip of of land there, or water there, is the dividing point between what we would call Asia, the continent, and Europe, the continent. So the gospel is going transcontinental at this point. And yeah, so went to Troas. You know it better as Troy. Stopped halfway at the island there, go to the port, and then into Philippi. Okay? Now, that's a picture taken of uh, the city that Paul calls, or Luke calls Neapolis, they changed the name, 
But you can see it's a, a nice natural port. It was the gateway to Europe at that point. They've done some extensive archaeology on the first century site of Philippi. There's a couple of shots of what they've done archaeologically. And there's a theater, and everybody's gone to, um, golly, if you've gone to Israel or Jordan or Greece, you know the ancients like to have their theaters for their entertainment. Today we've got uh, Red Box. Is it Red Box? Is that right? Is it Blue Box? Where you get your movies, Red Box? Or Netflix, stuff like that. Well, that was kind of the first century equivalent of that, right? So we're traveling is the point. Now look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, they're in Philippi now. We went outside the gate to the riverside. Now, Paul's normal strategy is hit a big city, wait for the Sabbath, go to the synagogue where the Jews prayed and read scripture and preach Jesus as the Jewish Messiah in the synagogue and see what happens. And sometimes they get beaten up and thrown out of town, and other times people respond. And so they give the gospel first to the folks who had the Old Testament, and then after that exposure, they go to the Gentiles, the larger city. But here there's no, even though it's a large city, there's no synagogue. According to the rabbis, not the Old Testament, to start a synagogue, you had to have at least ten men. So there apparently aren't even ten Jewish men in the city of Philippi. And if you read this carefully, it sounds like there aren't any men at all identified with Judaism, much less Christianity. So they go down to the riverside where they're supposing there's kind of a, a small group waiting to form a synagogue, and they find women, no men. Now notice in verse 13, it might sound like they get to the riverside, uh, they sit down because they're tired or they're going to eat their snack or something, but sitting down was the position of prayer, right, Blanche? You'd, the rabbi would read the scripture standing up, sit on a stool, and expound the scripture. So sitting down here is, okay, uh, we don't have a lot of people here, but the folks who are here, let's sit down, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And I got a feeling Luke kind of nudged Silas and said, tell him your testimony. Tell him about who Jesus is. And then Silas nudged Timothy, tell him your testimony. Okay. Then he nudged Luke, tell him your testimony. And then Paul shared his testimony, which, you know, blew their socks off, right? Very dramatic testimony. And then would have preached Jesus to them from passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or something like that. So they're sitting down in a teaching interaction with the people who are there. Now, by the way, this is a, a picture of the river that we're talking about. There really is a river. Hey, why do I show these pictures of archaeological sites? Because we're talking about real people, real places, and real events. That's right. And there really is a river there. But of course, you know, when you've got a lot of tourists wanting to know when they come to Macedonia, uh, where where did this happen? Well, the you know, Greek government will say, well, it happened right here. See, Paul sat there. Timothy was there, right? Now they built that kind of the tourist attraction on the riverside so you can kind of recreate in your mind what's happening there. Now look at verse, verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now watch this. If you're here with us last week, remember Paul's first inclination after he finished revisiting the cities he had visited and planted churches in during the first trip was to go to Roman Asia. But he was given a no answer by God. Thyatira is a city in modern day Turkey. It's in the Roman province of Asia. Paul's heart was for Asia 
God's answer was, don't go to Asia physically. Go to a lady from Asia who's desperately wanting to hear the truth. Who's responded to God's common grace general call and is waiting for somebody to fill in the, the blanks, connect the dots for her. So that reference to Thyatira, I don't think is uh, incidental. I think Luke, as he writes this, is telling you, hey, he wanted to go to Asia, but there was an Asian in Europe who needed to hear it first before Paul goes to Ephesus later. She's a seller of purple, is what the King James says, which means purple fabrics. Purple fabrics were the uh, uh, royal colors and very popular. I mean, today we wear like football jerseys of our famous favorite team or favorite hero and stuff like that. Well, back then, to be really trendy, you'd have purple outfits, or at least uh, parts of your outfit were purple. So she apparently is a pretty successful businesswoman, but she's a worshiper of God, meaning the real God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had promised to send a Savior. And she's listening. And the Lord opened her heart, and in the Bible, your heart, your mind, and your will, not the pump that pushes the blood around, to respond to the things Spoken by Paul. Hold your place and go back to chapter 13. After they shared their testimonies, and I'm assuming that's what happened. I could be wrong. Text doesn't say that. We know that Paul said some things, and she responds to those things and gets saved. So let me suggest we ought to look at the way Paul shares the gospel in Acts to get a feel for the kind of thing he would have said. So go to Acts chapter 13, uh, and let's read from verse 26. Chapter 13, verse 26. And we're um, in the Galatian Antioch. We're not in Antioch of Syria where the mission starts, but Antioch of Pisidia, which is in the middle of modern Turkey. And he says, in the synagogue there, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, all the physical uh, descendants of those folks are ethnically Jewish to this day. And also those among you who fear God, like Lydia was a Gentile who feared God, reverential awe, wanted to know him and his salvation. To us, the message of his salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, Jesus the Messiah, nor the utterances of the Old Testament prophets in the scriptures, which are read, ironically, every Sabbath, Fulfilling these, fulfilled these, the folks in Jerusalem fulfilled the prophecies the Messiah would be condemned and killed by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked the Roman emperor, the Roman governor, Pilate, that he be executed, that he be crucified. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God, the Father, resurrected him, raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. What's that? Christ dies on the cross for our sins. What happens three days later, Amanda? The resurrection. What happens 40 days after the resurrection? The ascension. And during that 40-day period, Christ appears multiple times to multiple groups of people, validates the resurrection was really real, not fantasy. Fact, not fantasy. Verse 32, and we preach to you the good news. Mel, there's euangelion, gospel again. The gospel is the good news that even though we're sinners, Christ has made us savable because of the work of Christ. Uh, 
So we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and our generation by raising up Jesus. Drop down to verse 38. Therefore, bottom line, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. And through him, everyone who walks an aisle, signs a card, joins, quits. No, everyone who believes is freed from all things, all the sins, the most worst, egregious, terrible thing we've ever done that we didn't get caught on so nobody else knows. God knows all that. Christ knew about it, died and paid for it. That through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, anything that keeps out of heaven, from which you could not be freed through trying to be a good person under the law of Moses. That is the way that statement breaks down. Through him, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again as the God-man Savior, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. What does Jesus have for you? Nothing but forgiveness, joy, peace, and eternal life. That's all he's got for you. Okay, And through him... Through him, through him, it's called parallelism. Through him, he's the issue. Through him, here's the terms. Everyone who what? Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Through him, the him is the same person both times. There's only one Savior. Everyone who believes is freed from all things, our sins. And nothing, no rules, even the rules God gave Israel to live as under as a nation, could possibly fix that problem for us. So let me suggest Paul presented that kind of gospel message on that riverbank in Philippi. Now let's remind ourselves what Paul says about the gospel. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. The word gospel can be used in a lot of different ways. We tend to use it as an adjective. We've got gospel jamborees, gospel bookstores, gospel musicians, gospel this, gospel that. But it's not an adjective, it's a noun. It describes a specific message. It means good news. And Paul tells us what that is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. At the end of this rather long letter to the church in Corinth, that he'll actually write during the third missionary journey. In the book of Acts 16, we're reading about the second missionary journey. Paul says, as I get to the end of this long and somewhat painful letter, because he's dealing with some tough Love kind of issues. Now let me remind you, brethren, about the gospel which I preached to you when I first came to Corinth, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved. That is, if you hold fast to the gospel I preach, there are false versions of it, um, unless that is you believed in vain. Now look at verse 14, by the way. Talking about vain. In this context, believing in vain is believing that Jesus tries to help us get to heaven, but he's still dead. He's not resurrected. Notice in verse 14, if Christ has not been resurrected, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. The way I like to say this is, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the resurrected one, Jesus, is the only one who can. So when he's talking about faith in vain, there are people trying to please the culture by watering down the resurrection can't do that it happened plus the only way you can be saved through jesus jack is if jesus really is alive right now if you really resurrected literally bodily supernaturally look at verse three and four here's the payoff for here's what i'm talking about here's what i delivered to you when i first hit corinth it's what i preached what you believe what we believe 
that Christ died for our sins. Uh, that means everything that could keep Gerilyn Harris out of heaven, or Homer Cox out of heaven, or Maxine Blaston out of heaven, or James Mitchell out of heaven, or most importantly, Brad McCoy out of heaven. Jesus Christ died and paid that metaphysical theological debt for us in our place on the cross. Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures. He was buried. He was room temperature for three days. But he was resurrected. He was supernaturally raised on the third day. And then it goes on. Go back to Acts 13. So as we think about, in a minute we're going to open up the hood of the engine of salvation. We'll talk about a couple of fine points. But here's what people need to hear. If you're a believer, it's important we live a contagious version of Christianity. Pick our battles. You know, we don't stop out of a Christian bookstore if Jingle Bells comes on, the Muzak. You know, I know there's no theology in Jingle Bells, but hopefully you're strong enough it won't ruin your faith to listen to Jingle Bells occasionally. I, I, I like uh, angels we have heard on high much better than Jingle Bells, just so you'll know how spiritual I am, but just so you'll know. But, you know, the good news is all of us have sinned and broken God's standards, and at our worst we break our own standards, and we can't fix it. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul is saying the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins, rose again. The bottom line is because Christ died for, Kylene, he died for your sins and my sins. Because Christ died for our sins and rose again, we don't have to die in our sins. There's a picture I took of the empty tomb. It's still empty. Because, uh, and, and the, the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so witnesses could get in to validate it, okay? None of the major religions have stuff like this, trust me. Um, but here's the bottom line, how important the resurrected Christ is. If there was no resurrection, as Paul says for most of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the implications of that, if that's in fact the reality, then there's no salvation for anyone in Jesus He's not just a virtuous martyr. He's not just a great moral teacher. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way to God. He's got to either be a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. And I would say his real resurrection proves there's no salvation for anyone but Christ. And I know that sounds exclusive and uh, narrow and backward, but one plus one equals two in every language and every culture, and there is no salvation in any other uh, he's the only one given under heaven whereby we must be saved because he is resurrected. Okay, So, you know, today could be the day of salvation for you. And there's all kinds of amazing theology that happens when somebody hears and believes in Jesus Christ. But saving faith is just active, receptive trust. Uh, it's Martin Luther who said it's just the empty hands of a beggar that receives the merits of Christ. And, you know, the guy on the cross uh, who's called the thief on the cross the Romans didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified terrorists, enemies to the Roman rule. The guy on Jesus' right had, had broken all ten commandments, okay, multiple times. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Is he doing anything meritorious there? Now, he doesn't know that, but God, through efficacious grace, was opening his heart up to be able to do that. But he looks at Jesus and basically says, I'm a sinner, I can't fix it, you can and I want you to. Ben, that's all saving faith is. It's just the empty hands of a sinner that says, I'm a sinner, it's my fault, it's not mom's fault. My pastor messed me up a little bit back at Tanglewood, but I'm going to blame it mainly on me. Uh, I can't fix it, 
you can and I want you to because you're dying for my sins and you're going to rise again, that kind of thing. So that's what's happening there. So if you've never trusted Christ, rather than getting some theology for the next 15 minutes about how this works, you ought to put your your faith and trust in him. How much faith do you need to be saved? All the faith you got, even if it's just that little bit, you know. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve to go to hell. Wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through trying to be a better person? No, through Jesus. Why why is Jesus so important? Because he died and paid the debt and he rose again. So today can be the day of your salvation. We're not going to sing just as I am 17 times. I'm daring to believe if it's real, God opens your heart, you see it and believe it, and it happens without without any music. I don't think there was any music being played uh, on the uh, shore there of the uh, Karenis River there outside of Philippi, but it was real. Okay, let's zero in on this statement in verse 14 for a couple of minutes. Very important statement. The Lord opened her, Lydia's heart, to respond to, that is to believe in the things of the gospel that were spoken to, uh, spoken by Paul. Uh, I did a word study on the word opened there, and the Greek word for open, dianazen, means, get this, this is worth the process of mission. The word there in the original Greek, you know what it means? It means to open. That's what it means. Yeah. Uh, Jesus opened the ears of a deaf guy in Mark. Uh, we're told that uh, Mary's womb was open when Jesus was born. Uh, in Luke 24, Jesus is walking as a resurrected Jesus. And these guys don't know it yet with some guys on the road to Emmaus. And at the end of the conversation, he opens their eyes to realize it was Jesus. And then when Stephen is stoned, he looks up and he sees the heavens opened and Jesus standing, giving him a standing ovation as he's about to go to heaven. So the word there means open, but the heart is the mind and the will, and that's where you trust Jesus Christ, in your mind and your will. It's active, receptive trust. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God to those who believe in his name. Now, we're going to go into the Holy of Holies for almost 15 minutes here, and it's a little deeper than most people want to think this time uh, this early on a Sunday morning, that's okay. It'll be worth it. I'm going to hold you by the hand and get you through this. But let me just say that the the way I understand some of these dynamics is uh, not the only way Christians cut up the stake here. We're going to look at holy truth. We're going to be on sacred ground. But I just tell you as a disclaimer, some wonderful Christian folks who love the Lord just as much as I do or you do and maybe a lot more will define some of these terms slightly differently. At TBF, we focus on the essentials of the faith, and we give you all a lot of room to hammer out your convictions on the important but non-essential facts. And so we're looking at those kind of things as we think about God opening up this uh, lady's heart. Um, now, theologians call that dynamic where God opens the heart before people believe. They call that efficacious grace. I can't spell it, but I do know what it means, and I'll explain it to you. Efficacious is an old English word that means effective. Every time somebody believes God has given them efficacious grace, it opens the heart to see and believe the gospel. It doesn't believe for us, but it is necessary for it to actually happen. Now, efficacious grace needs to be put in this broader broader context. So we're going to talk about 
three facets of grace. Common grace, efficacious grace, and amazing grace, how they fit together. Let's talk about common grace first. There's some verses there. We'll look at a couple. Look at Matthew 5. When you turn to Matthew 5.45, we're thinking about common grace. Common grace is defined as God's general care and provision for all of his human creation uh, and their needs, both physical and metaphysical. And it includes a general call to salvation. Preach the gospel to the whole world. There's a general call. Many are called. Few are chosen, but many are called. Good many. Like right now, it's 7.2 billion people on the planet Earth. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He says that twice in the New Testament. How often does he have to say it? Right? Whosoever will may come. That's common grace. But look at what Jesus says about just the God's com- compassion and concern just for the physical needs of his human creation, just generally. In uh, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 45... And let's start with verse 43 for the larger context. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy, which is what the Pharisees taught wrongly about hating your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so you may be like God in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, not just on the good people, not just on believers, but on believers. Sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You should have been here Thursday morning. We saw a lot of rain out here, didn't we, James? We thought we were going to blow away for a couple of minutes. Uh, for if you love only those who love you, what's the big deal about that? That's easy. Anybody can do that, right? That's an example of common grace. Look at uh, Acts 14. Go back to the first missionary journey. Paul in Lystra is making reference to God's general concern and provision for his human creation. Their needs, physical and metaphysical. Acts 14, verse 17. He's preaching to the folks there, the uh, not in the synagogue. Remember, they thought uh, he was Mercury. They thought he was the messenger of the gods. And he had to explain, I'm just work for the real God. And he says, uh, Paul says, God did not leave himself without witness. Because he did good and gave you rains from heaven and beautiful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even after saying that, it was hard for them to convince them, hard for him to convince them he wasn't a God worth worshiping kind of thing. Look at one more. Look at John chapter 16. We talked about this a couple times recently, but in the upper room discourse, just before Jesus is arrested and then the next morning crucified, He's orienting his disciples to the way things work. And he says, pragmatically, it's it's to your advantage I'm going away because we're going to go to the church age and every believer will be permanently indwelt by the help of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he'll continue to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What do you know about the world in the book of John? Jesus says, I am in the world, but I am not of the world. God so loved the world. The world is the domain of darkness, spiritual rejection, and God loves the world. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is not going to just convict Christians of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll convict unbelievers. That won't save you, but that will move you on the glide path. And some people still dig in their heels after being convicted. I've talked to many people who have been very convicted, but they're not uh, able and not willing to trust in Jesus Christ. So that's common grace. 
That's the general call to salvation. That's God's provision for his human creation generally. Now let's talk about efficacious grace. Uh, the poster child for efficacious grace would be Lydia in our passage today. God opened up her heart so she could believe. But look at uh, John 6. This perplexing statement to many makes perfect sense when you put it in its broader context. God works persuasively but not coercively to those who are positive to his overtures up to a certain point. But if we say no during any any of the spectrum of common grace, he's not going to chunk efficacious grace on us. He doesn't do that. He works persuasively, not coercively. Look at John 6.44. Jesus says, uh, no one can come to me. No one can believe in me like Lydia did, like I did, like hopefully you have. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's efficacious grace. That's opening up the, the heart to believe. And I'll raise up that one uh, on the last day. Notice that I'll raise him up on the last day. See that? Go back to verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. So he's kind of talking about the theology of verse 40 when he gets to verse 44. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9. You don't just have a general call to the world. You have a specific call, a summons to those who will in fact believe. And salvation is of the Lord. What exactly did you do to get God to come up with a plan of salvation. What did you do, Zane? Did you do anything to convince him to come up with a plan for salvation? I'd say probably zero. What did you do to get Jesus to be willing to take a subordinate role and come to earth to be the Savior? What did you do, Steve? How did you pull that off? Did nothing. What did you do to get Jesus to make the atonement? Nothing. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. He, he initiates the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. But we're not robots. We're responsible for our choices, but we can't respond ultimately in a saving way unless God enables us to do that. He doesn't force us to, but consistent with the way he's worked and we responded to common grace. When you got saved, it was more than me just stumbling into the back row of Southern Baptist Revival at age nine because it was a special week and we were all put in there during Sunday school and we had to stay. It'd be too embarrassing to leave and so I stayed and eventually heard the gospel. So... Uh, there's a lot more going on than just uh, us stumbling in there. Uh, I can't find my passage here. Second Timothy, yeah, it's not First Timothy. I said 15 minutes. Can you give me 20 for application grace? We're almost done, but just let's get this down on the table since we've got such a great chance with Lydia today. Uh, talking about uh, who we are in Christ and who He is in Christ. Look at verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Or of me, his prisoner in Rome, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. When's the last time you heard somebody preach on that? Join with us in suffering for the gospel. Five ways to have a great marriage. Five ways to overcome stress. Five ways to do this and the other. Five ways to win a, a cowtongue football tournament. You know, this is the way we preach that. It's all pragmatism. How about join me with suffering? Suffering? I don't want to do that. Forget that. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling. That's a summons, not an invitation. That's efficacious grace. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. We had nothing to do with it, right? Um, one more thing. Am I done with that? Yeah, that's, that's all. So efficacious means efficient. And efficacious grace is the work of God that 
as folks are responding to common grace and the general call to hear and believe the gospel, before we can get over the goal line, God opens up our perception to see and believe. He doesn't believe for us, but uh, without him opening the, the eyes of our heart, we'd never see it. Now, I put it, common grace, efficacious grace, amazing grace. Here's the question. How do these two things fit together? How can you have kind of a general call to the world, but only those who God opens their hearts actually believe and get saved? How does that work? Well, here's an amazing thing. It's kind of like the Trinity. Is there one God or three gods? One God and three persons. Is God sovereign or are we responsible? They're both true at the same time, just like there's one God and three persons at the same time. Same kind of thing here. This is from Walvoord and Ryrie and Leitner and people like that. In every case in which efficacious grace that opens the heart, and when God opens that heart, you will believe. In every case in which efficacious grace is not given to a person, that person has freely rejected common grace at some point. I love that. Let's look at a couple of verses. Look at John 3.18. I just got, look up here. Just, just save some time. The one who believes in him, Jesus, is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already. Because at some point in that tractor beam toward application's grace, they've dug in their heels. They haven't trusted Christ. They haven't moved and stopped moving in the direction. Because they haven't believed in the name of the monogenes, only begotten, terrible translation, unique, only one of its kind, uh, son of God. Uh, I like, go to Acts 13. And we're almost done with this discussion. Then we'll get back to our passage and finish. But look at Acts 13. We were just there a couple weeks ago. I guess it was a couple months ago, probably, actually. But, right, James? Uh, when you're having fun, man, time flies, right? Acts 13, 46. You know, he preaches the gospel uh, in the midst of the first missionary journey and goes to the synagogue. And in this particular city, they just didn't like it. And so in verse 46 of Acts 13, Paul says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary. We had a, based on common grace and moral imperative, necessary the word of God should be spoken to you here in the synagogue first. But since you repudiate it, and since you judge or prove yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. I like that. That's the way that works. Now, no extra charge for this. But, you know, when the regenerate, go back to Acts 16. Yeah, and we won't move around anymore. But watch this. We're looking at what? Verses 11 through 14. Next week, we're going to see, it's fun. Uh, Blanche, it's really fun. In, in Philippi, I'm sure a lot of people came to faith, but Luke only tells us about three of them. This woman, Lydia, a slave girl, and a Philippian jailer. Those are the three that are zeroed in on. And yeah, in the same general context that we're told that God opened up the heart of Lydia to respond to the gospel, we read about the salvation of Philippian jailer. And guess what, Mr. and Mrs. Nichols? This is the only place in the Bible where you have a point-blank question, what must I do to be saved? That's Acts 16.30. That's a pretty important question to be able to answer biblically, right? What must I do to be saved? And verse 31 says, They, Paul and Barnabas said, Beg God for mercy that he may open your heart and come crawling, screaming to the cross. He doesn't say that. What they say to this Philippian jailer who's not a theologian, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
And your whole family, your wives and your kids, they can be saved too if they'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the unregenerate jailer asked Paul and Barnabas, pretty good sources, what must they do to be saved? They didn't say, beg God for mercy that he might chunk some efficacious grace on you. They simply told the guy, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they promised him at the moment he did that, he would have eternal life, he'd be saved. And they further promised him that all of his family could be saved too, if they'd believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, among other things, there are no sex, gender, age, character pre-qualifications for those who will believe and receive the gift of eternal life. Pretty awesome stuff. Okay, take this to heart. A couple of principles and we'll finish. Salvation is of the Lord, so it's essential we always speak to God before we speak to people about God. And a lot of times we, we focus on our techniques and our program and our presentation, the card we're going to read or this cube we use, you know, all over the world, literally. And those are all good tools, but nobody gets saved unless God saves them. So I would say we need to speak to God before we speak of God to men. Before, during, and after Blanche Britton or Derek McPherson or Brad McCoy trying to do evangelism, we should pray the Holy Spirit would convict the unsaved. Of their sin, they got it. Righteousness, they need it. Judgment, it's coming apart from Christ. And that he'd open their hearts to believe because they're not going to believe in it unless he opens their heart. But when we actually share the gospel to somebody in Sunday school or Cameron University or at an assisted living center or in a bank, wherever it is, rather than explaining efficacious grace to the unregenerate person, we should simply just share the good news of the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and urge them to trust in Christ, knowing that when anyone believes in Christ, God has been drawing them, convicting them, opening their hearts so they could see and believe. But the bottom line is, they got to believe, right? So before we uh, speak to people, let's speak to God. Uh, and the second final principle would be knowing how God works can work wonders. I grew up in a culture where I got the impression, this may not be what they said to me, Ben, every Sunday, but I would go to church as a young Christian, nine years old and up, and what I heard every week was uh, pep rally, get excited, uh, go out there and find somebody you can drag to church so we can tell them how to get saved next Sunday. And, you know, after a while, it's like if you don't bring a visitor it's like, what are you doing here? You know, you're already a Christian. Your job is to drag somebody in here so the preacher can tell them how to get saved. You know, And you know what? I'm glad to share the gospel from the pulpit. But really, the plan is not for preachers, not for us to drag the world to church. The plan is for the church, believers, to go out into the world and live the gospel and share, share it with words when necessary and prudent. So, uh, you know... Uh, in that culture I grew up in, the people who dragged a lot of visitors or who read tracts to people, even if they totally turned them off. Hey, you, what's your name? Bill, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. Let me read this tract to you. Or better yet, you read it. Okay. Uh, did anybody get to witness this week? Sunday school? Yeah, I got to witness the Bill. You scared him spitless and probably pushed him further away from the gospel, you know, because they think you're a jerk, you know. Doesn't work like I don't. I never see Jesus do that. I never see the apostles do that. Anywhere in the book of Acts. It doesn't happen. So, but what happens is sometimes we, we get excited about sharing the faith and we kind of get proud of ourselves. Or we see somebody come to faith, see David Bearden come to faith and say, he was lucky he called me. 
And you're lucky I wasn't out hitting golf balls that afternoon because you'd come up here and got in a car wreck. You'd right to hell, you know. God's bigger than that. He's got all that figured out. And if I had been playing golf, he would have gone to somebody else and heard the gospel, right? So, But even on our best day as witnesses, if we understand God's doing it all, salvation is of the Lord. We're not going to focus on ourselves or get impressed with ourselves, And that's very important. Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. And it's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the good news of Christianity is all about what God in Christ has done for us. It's not about what we can do for God. Now, here's the thing. When you trust Jesus as Savior, He does wipe the slate clean. And and those sins will never come up again, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Because watch this. If this pulpit is the cross, okay, 33 A.D., and you know I was born at a very young age, very close to my mother at the time, Ben, when it happened, 1953, how many of my sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? Okay, I got saved nine years later. How many of my sins were forgiven when I trusted Jesus Christ? All the ones He died for, even the sentence I'm going to commit at Cameron this week. They call me Dr. Doom at Cameron now. And I'm going to try not to sin as much as usual at Cameron this week. But, yeah, it's unbelievable what you get. You get total forgiveness of sins. You get the righteousness of Christ put to your account. You're given the basis of joy, peace, eternal life. But He doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card when you trust Christ. He gives you a new capacity to love and serve Him. Isn't that true, Olga? And when you start feeding it, it really takes off, doesn't it, Olga? Yeah, that's what it's all about. We've got a lot to love in Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank You that salvation is Your work from start to finish. It's Your plan. It's Your provision. And it's your uh, work in common and efficacious grace that draws us to see and believe in Jesus Christ. So you get all the credit and we give it all to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.